Hello, uh, welcome to the Nebraska sixth episode of the Nebraska Employment Podcast, a podcast about employment law and workers' compensation law by me, John Ream, a lawyer in Nebraska. Anyway, I saw an article in late November, and, I, and I'm cutting this episode the day after Thanksgiving, but I saw an article in November in the Wall Street Journal involving a woman in China who sued her employer on the basis, she sued our prospective employer for not hiring her, and the basis of the suit was she was being discriminated against because of the province or state of her origin. She was from the Henan province, which is a, maybe not rural, but a more poor province in China, and she successfully sued an employer who didn't want to hire her, and the employer was in a wealthier province of China, Hangzhou, and again, forgive me for uh, butchering the my Chinese pronunciation, but you know, essentially, this was the, this case in China. What would be like a person in from West Virginia, or Kentucky, or let's be honest, Nebraska, suing somebody in new york or california for not hiring them because of their state of origin and this would not happen in the united states and every once in a while i get calls about cases like this but that article got me thinking about some important differences between american law and chinese law and why a provincial discrimination or regional discrimination case would succeed in china and fail in the united states and why that is, uh, and also, you know, looking at American law, you know, why it would fail under American law, and then maybe talking about the ramifications of America of American law, and particularly about employee mobil- mobility in American laws, um, de-emphasis of discri- the fact that American law really doesn't do a whole lot of discrimination based on state citizenship holder there is a little bit and talk about how America's laws uh, about state citizenship impact particular workers compensation system because I think you know particularly with multi-jurisdictional claims and workers compensation that article 4 of the Constitution which gives Americans the right to travel and work wherever they want and also requires that states give full faith and credit to other doc to, to the judgments of other states comes into play. So I'm going to do a little bit of uh, talking about comparison between American and Chinese law, and then talk about Article Four, and then do some final thoughts. So anyway, so first I'm going to discuss some differences between American and Chinese law, and why provincial or regional discrimination is a thing in China, whereas it's not legally recognized here in the United States. So why is provincial or regional discrimination recognized in China and not in the United States? I think there's two main reasons. The first reason, and they go to the differences, some pretty major differences between American and Chinese law, and I'm going to talk first about the differences that American between American and Chinese law that actually favor employees, at least on the Chinese side. Um, China, like like many other countries, 
throughout the world, uh, not the United States, but China essentially has looking, you're doing some quick research about Chinese law. China requires just cause, an employer proves just cause for termination. Uh, whereas in the United States, American employees are employees at will. I mean, obviously there's exceptions through our civil rights laws, but the default rule in the United States is your employee at will and you can hire and fire a person at any time for any reason. China, it's different. China, you got you got to prove up just cause and there's certain factors that, that come in. Essentially, it's, it's to make a U.S. comparison, it's very, it seems to me fairly similar to what an employer has to show to deny unemployment. So it's a more employee-friendly system. So, I mean, Chinese courts are a lot more likely to second-guess and have more leeway to second-guess the opinions of or the decisions made by by businesses than, than, than American courts. And certainly, you know, where you're from, you know, state or provincial origin doesn't really seem to be a good cause for denying employment or making an adverse decision. So yeah, also you know, do in research for this episode, I found that actually China actually pers- rules out or, you know, at least prohibits private parties from, discriminating based on maybe not in province but there's a there's a provision that 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 in that allow that prohibits urban employers from prohibiting against or for, prohibits them from discriminating against rural rural applicants so and again that that's not a protected class within american law so yeah it's kind of weird in a way, Chinese law is better for empl- better for employees in some regards. But I don't want this to be an apology for for Chinese law here or for the or for the Chinese system, because there are some factors that weigh very heavily that are American law is much much better on. Uh, so and we're going to talk about those now, just in case I'm rubbing any. Americans the wrong way. So the reason, part of the reason why regional discrimination is 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 a thing in China is because you know it is to some extent in the United States, but it's not legally actionable. But in China, it's a much bigger thing because in China they have a law. Or essentially a, a system, and I'm gonna I'm gonna mis I'm gonna butcher this pronunciation. Who call? Or it's H U K O U O H U K U O. Where essentially it, if you it, depending on where you're born, you're bound to about about where you can travel, where you can work, where where you can do business. Where you can contract. So if, if if the United States had this system, which we don't, you know, me being a you know born in Nebraska, raised in Nebraska, I would have limited ability to live and work and contract and do businesses, do business in other parts of the parts of the United States. 
And here in the United States, we don't have that. I mean, if you live in Nebraska and you want to buy an apartment in, in Brooklyn or you want to buy an apartment in California or you want to move to Florida or you want to, you know, live part-time in, in Arizona and do business down there or work around the country, you're free to do that in the United States. And why are Americans free to do that? What is this freedom? Where does this freedom come from? And from, as, a, as a legal matter, this freedom comes from the Constitution, uh, Article 4. Article 4, the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And the Privileges and Immunities Clause, uh, Article 4, Section 2, gives Americans the right to travel and contract you know, throughout the country. So that is a constitutionally protected protected right that, that Americans have. So um so that's a huge difference between American law and and Chinese law and that privileges and immunities clause has um given Americans the right to you know to live and work where wherever they want. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the workers' compensation section of the podcast as to why this creates creates complications. But but anyway, but yeah, but Americans, you know, so regional discrimination is is not a thing because in the United States, legally actionable thing in the United States, because American, you know, law essentially prohibits discrimination uh in prohibits dis- discrimination by the state. Right, like the state of Nebraska can't discriminate, you know, for the most part against somebody from Kansas or Missouri or Iowa. However, as much Nebraskans would want to discriminate against Iowans, but just Nebraska Iowa joke there. But anyway, so those those are the, some of the differences between China and the U.S. Essentially, China has laws about private discrimination on regional or provincial basis because the government sanctions that to some extent. So I mean, civil rights laws are about the control of discrimination and essentially in China uh the government can discriminate based on provincial or, or state origin but private parties are here have less ability to do that in the United States it's it, it's kind of the opposite the um or it is the opposite in the United States in the United States states can't discriminate against residents of other states but you know private parties can you know, as as much as they, as much as they, you know, private parties are free to do so, and in the United States, on getting under employment at will, so long as you're not, um, you know, so long as you're not discriminating based on a factor that's prescribed by law, then you're 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 free to do that. But I think, to some extent, the you know privileges and immunities clauses helped. You know, according at least according to the Federalist Papers, and I think this is true. The Privileges and Immunities Clauses helped, you know, bind Americans together as a nation. Not that there aren't sectional rivalries within the United States and regional biases within the United States, but for the most part, they really haven't had any material that much of a material effect upon residents of you know places that are less. I guess you sort of the non-metropolitan areas or the backwaters of the United States, places like, you know, Nebraska to the deep south, you know, some of the Rocky Mountain states. But uh, anyway, and another thing about American constitutional law that 
maybe prevents us from having like a hoo system just besides the uh, Article 4. As a fact, there is a little bit of, there are some counter-majoritarian things in the American Constitution, the Electoral College, and the Senate that overrepresent uh, rural areas, frankly, um, and give, you know, increase the power of, political power of rural residents. So, you know, assuming, let's say, Article 4 didn't exist in the American Constitution or you didn't have the Privileges and Immunities Clause, but you still had the Senate and the Electoral College, it would be harder, you know, let's say for like, a, like let's just use a, a bad guy here, President Bloomberg, if Bloomberg decided that, you know, I want to impose a hoo system in the United States and Article 4 didn't exist, you know, the, the things like the Senate, the Electoral College might make it harder for him to implement that. But anyway, that, those are some differences between Chinese and American law. And I guess in my next section, I'm going to go in and talk about, uh, talk about, you know, mobile freedom and mobility in America, that right to travel, that right to contract and how it impacts workers compensation but i'm going to do that in the next section of the podcast you know the freedom to travel and work within the united states is is not absolute and if we do have something like a huku system in the united states it would certainly uh we could argue that it applies to immigrants particularly those from latin america that essentially you know are at risk if they speak up at work uh, and they don't, if you know, depending on their legal status to work in the United States, they risk being deported or, you know, or locked up. So to some extent, yeah, we do have a, you know, a hoo system within the United States, but it, it applies to people who, you know, aren't American citizens. Where in China, they essentially have a, a, like a, a system that makes, you know, treats people in other provinces differently. It almost essentially treats them like foreigners or people that are not born in the United States. And, you know, throughout American history, there's been examples where, you know, people aren't free to live where they want to live. I mean, Native Americans, a uh, prime example of that. Before the Civil War, many northern states tried to keep out African Americans. Um, but again, those, not to excuse any of that stuff, but those... Um, those prohib, pro, you know, essentially those prohibitions on free movement were based on race rather than just where you're from. One example of of when when the, when we actually Americans attempted to you know put in something like a huku system or regional discrimination, it goes back to the Depression. If anybody's read The Grapes of Wrath, you had people from you know states Oklahoma. Arkansas and the Okies who moved out to California. And the Okies weren't just from Oklahoma. They were from any place in the Great Plains, including Nebraska, that was affected by the drought in the 1930s. I had some uh, family members who migrated out there. Uh, apparently, they were going out to work in the war industries, and they would probably cringe if I said that they were Okies, but whatever. I mean, lots of people migrated within 
the United States during the Depression. And people from California, or at least some law enforcement out there, they wanted to keep the Okies out. You know, they, they, the Los Angeles Police Department went out and played like California Border Patrol. Um, and they tried to keep people out who were migrating in from other parts of the country. So and that's kind of, in my mind, that's a, you know sort of an early form of eco-fascism. And we may see more things like that with climate change. You know, maybe the northern states will try to keep, you know, climate refugees out. Or, you know, we, we could be seeing that in the future. But, but for the most part, Americans are free to travel about. Even African Americans who um, are arguably you know, a group of citizens who were most, you know, oppressed during American history. I mean, there's part of African-American history is the Great Migration, where African-Americans moved from the South to the Northern states, or even, you know, the Exodusters moved out to Kansas and Nebraska, and, you know, moved for the sake of, you know, social mobility and, to, you know, for better jobs. Uh, so again, you know, the right to travel is is enshrined within and move for work is largely enshrined in in American law and in a way it's encouraged as a way of economic development uh, by elites who you, know, you you look at rural you look at rural states that are losing population and there's losing jobs there's always this presumption why don't they just move someplace else you know so but that right to travel and that ability to travel and work is baked in to American law. I mean, it is, it, it is in the Constitution. So, and a lot of people do travel, you know, travel, work and travel throughout the United States. There are mobile employees and it creates a problem. So if somebody lives in one state and they get hurt in another state what state, you know, can you get workers' compensation benefits in? So, and again, this is kind of where, these are kind of where this, that, that dilemma of if you're hurt in one state, why can't you claim workers' compensation there? Or why can't you claim workers' compensation in the state where you live when you've been hurt in another state? That's something, again, that's, a dilemma that's baked into our constitutional system. So again, Article 4, Section 2 gives you the right to travel and work and contract wherever you want. However, the in laws interpreting that, the Privileges and Immunities Clause, states can discriminate to some extent on laws that they enact for the health and welfare and safety under their 10th Amendment police powers. And of course, one of those laws that is enacted for health, safety, and welfare under the 10th Amendment police powers are workers' compensation laws, which are state laws because of a fluke of legal history when they were enacted in the early 20th century, going to how the Commerce Clause was, Interstate Commerce Clause was interpreted back, back then. But anyway... So what that means is states can choose which employers and which employees get the coverage of their 
workers' compensation laws. So that's why you you run across a situation, you know, particularly with with truckers and other traveling employees of, you know, where they're hurt in one state, they were hired in another state, they live in another state, what state has has jurisdiction. And it's it's a pretty common problem. Um actually there's a Virginia State Senator Lee Carter who is an electrician who part of one of the main reasons he ran for legislature is because he was an injured worker who can't I think the states that he lives in Virginia and I think he was working for an Illinois employer in a Georgia in your hurt in Georgia or something like that. And he, he elected to try to bring his case in Virginia and there was no Virginia jurisdiction. He lost out on workers' compensation benefits. So the question of how of of workers who are mobile workers of them, you know, trying to figure out what states have jurisdiction for their workers' compensation claim is very difficult. And it's a situation that you know, when people thought about when the, the Privileges and Immunities Clause was drafted in the early, in the late 18th century, you know, workers' compensation didn't didn't exist. So, so you got this situation where, you know, people are, are wondering, you know, what, what state has jurisdiction. Uh, and again, this is, we talk more about the Fourth Amendment. Fortunately, the Privileges and Immunities Clause allows you to bring a case, you know, you can bring a case in, in any state and you can bring that, you have the same access to, the same right to access the, the courts of another state as a citizen of that state has the right. So, I mean, I have, you know, so if I'm wrong in Iowa and there's Iowa jurisdiction, I can, I can sue an Iowa court just as, you know, I have the right to sue just as much as any other, as an Iwegian would or an Iowa, citizen of Iowa, sorry. But anyway, so so the Fourth Amendment gives you that, but at least in workers, or, or Article 4 gives you that, but at least in workers' compensation, if you have the right to access courts the same as citizens of other states, you know, does that mean, does that equal access mean that you need to travel thousands of miles and incur, hunt, you know, close to $1,000 in expenses sometime to you know, effectuate your rights in the workers' compensation court of another state, and you know, states are states are split on that. Nebraska gives the option of doing trials by trials and hearings by video. I've done them sometimes, but the employer has to agree to that, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. So, but I guess there's some other fourth Article Four issues that come up in multi-state workers' compensation cases. Um, Article 4, Section 1 states that states have to give full faith and credit to the judgments of other states. So does that mean that if you claim workers' compensation in one state that you're stuck with that state? Yeah, sometimes it does. Uh, there's a decision in the 1930s or 40s, the McCartan decision. So if your state says that you can't, you know, if you claim benefits in this state, you can't claim benefits in another state. 
So if that's the case, you're, you're, you're stuck with one state. A couple of other later cases, uh, the first case is Magnolia. Then there's the McCartan case and the uh, Thomas versus Washington gas and light. And those cases hold, well, so long as if you're so long as the 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 state says doesn't prohibit you from bringing claims in multiple states then you you can bring claims in multiple states so and just you know obviously give credit to to the benefits paid in the other states so and that means that you know employees can get paid more fairly for for work injuries you know some would say well that's a windfall which one thing you have to remember about workers' compensation is it's a it's a defined benefit, and generally, and in many cases, the benefits under workers' compensation are less than you would get in a in a tort claim. So they're limited benefits, and also you don't really double collect in those cases. Let's say you get paid fifty thousand dollars in Iowa or, or in Nebraska, and then go to Iowa. And get seventy five. The employer only owes the the other twenty five thousand dollars for that. So, but again, you know, Article Four uh, of the Constitution, full faith and credit clause, comes into play there as well. And the Tenth uh, Amendment police powers that workers' comp laws are enacted under also come into uh, you know also interact with the privilege and immunities clause when it comes to workers' compensation claims for workers who are hurt outside of their home state, you know, particularly truckers. So anyway, I'm going to wrap up this, uh, wrap up this section and do some final thoughts about workers' compensation in Article 4 here in just a few minutes. So I'm back. So in the previous section of the podcast, got into the sort of the constitutional explanation of why multi-jurisdictional workers' compensation claims are so difficult. But from a practical matter, if you're an injured worker, trying to figure out where you should bring a claim is or where you can and where you should bring a claim are very difficult questions. And these are quite difficult questions even for attorneys to figure out. You know, it's interesting that I was yeah, I'd written up some blog posts about Article 4 after I read this article about the uh, provincial discrimination case in China and you know, we had we were contacted about a multi-jurisdictional case uh, of all places. You know, ironically enough, the prospective client lived in Virginia, and we were being contacted by a Virginia lawyer on this. So, I mean, the, these multi-jurisdictional claims are really hard to figure out because you have to figure out. Okay, you know, even let's say even if you can bring a case, what's the statute of limitations? What's the maximum benefit rate? What's the causation standard? How is permanent disability ascertained? I mean, all sorts of diff- very difficult questions that you 
need lawyers not only to understand, but you have to have lawyers that are talking to each other and that know and trust each other. So, and to some extent, Wilg, you know, work, work, I guess it's work, it used to be Workplace Injury Law Group. I think it's Workplace, it's something else now. I can't ever remember the new Wilg uh, organization or the Wilg name, but, you know, Wilg, which is essentially an organization of workers' compensation attorneys, that's something that, you know, we do, that the lawyers within Wilg talk about this on a pretty regular basis. But again, if you're just a, you know, regular worker, blue-collar worker who, you know, works out of state and, you know, you, you, you could bring it, you could bring a claim in three or four different states. It's a very difficult, difficult conundrum for you. So, but I mean, there's a few, I guess, policy solutions to this that would, would help figure this out. You know, the first one that's kind of the trendy one right now is what's called portable benefits or employee benefits that an employee can can take with them regardless of of where they're where they're working. Um so and so if you have portable benefits, doesn't matter if you're hurt in Vermont and you live in Arizona working for a Nebraska company, you can just put a put a claim in for that. Um and workers comp is not perfectly portable. You know, the medical, you know, some some states won't accept some offices won't accept work, you know, won't accept outstate workers compensation. The way that permanent disabilities paid can be can be different too. So lots of different reasons why workers compensation isn't totally portable, even if the benefit survives the employment relationship. So portable benefits are one of those things that are uh, you know, it would be a possible solution for this. Although most of the portable benefit systems that I've seen, and I've wrote about this fairly extensively, what they do is they tend to shift the cost of work injuries away from the employee onto, or away from the employer onto the employee. I mean, portable benefits are one of these solutions that's being thought of you know, by proponents of the gig economy of Uber and Lyft and all the, frankly, democratic operatives who work for them. You know, it's a, um, you know, portable benefits is kind of a progressive buzzword that I think um, hides the reality of of what they are is just a way to shift the cost of employee benefits on to the employee. So, but, but, you know, if portable benefits were done right, then, you know, I think they would be helpful to, to workers that are, were hurt in other states. Another solution that's uh, a little older, it's a little little bit older than I am, I mean, I'm 44, but would be minimum standards for workers' compensation. And this is the minimum standards came up in the early 70s, about when OSHA uh, came into being, and it was a pressure to improve workers' compensation laws because state workers' compensation laws were were so deficient. Um, 
one of the precipitating factors of Martin Luther King Jr. coming to Memphis was the sanitation worker strike. I mean, that's why he came. One of the precipitating factors of that sanitation worker strike was was a work injury where two workers, you know, you know, sanitation workers, garbage men, were killed on the job. And so what? You have workers' compensation. I mean, not so what, but I mean, worker obviously workers' compensation was it was an inadequate remedy for that. It wasn't prevent. It wasn't. You know, it would compensate people somewhat for injuries, but it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. So, I mean, there was the the National Commission on Workers' Compensation was an effort, maybe a misguided one, but it was certainly an effort to increase standards and, you know, increase minimum standards for workers' compensation. Uh, And I think to some extent it would also encourage uniformity of the law. So if you had minimum standards and you had more uniformity among workers' compensation laws, it wouldn't be it would be it wouldn't be so hard to figure out for a worker that again lives in one state, hurt in another, working for a company in yet another state, it would be easier for them to figure out where they should bring their workers' compensation laws. And again, there's no no constitutional reason why right now, even with the Roberts Court, why minimum standards wouldn't be permissible under the Interstate Commerce Clause. So I think minimum standards for workers' compensation, a renewed push for those, would be a better solution than portable benefits to make it easier for workers who work in different states to collect workers' compensation benefits and to fully enjoy, you know, the rights that they have as Americans under Article 4 of the Constitution to travel and work and contract wherever they want within the United States. So, Anyway, all right. Well, thanks for listening. Um, I thought this was kind of an interesting podcast, one of the favorite ones I've done so far. Uh, get in touch with me if you want. You can find me at Twitter at John, J-O-N-V, Reem, R-E-H-M, dot, at, at Twitter. That's where I'm at. I'm thinking about maybe doing an account just for this podcast, but... I think I have more social media accounts than I need already. So anyway, all right. um, Hope everybody has a happy holiday season, and I'll talk to you next time.